episode 1011 of the Tall Can Audio Podcast. Up and running, away we go. My name is Matt Robinson. Welcome inside the show. Uh, make sure you give us a follow on social media at Tall Can Audio. Make sure you're subscribed in your podcast app, wherever you're hearing us right now. And uh, we bring this up often in the show notes. It doesn't hurt to bring it up on air every now and then. It helps us out a ton if you'd go ahead and leave us a rating and a review inside your podcast app. Just takes a second. Uh, Spotify, Apple Pods, uh, both have the the star rating system there. If you haven't done so, we'd love it if you could take a second and uh, and leave us one of those. Makes a big difference. Helps us uh, helps us get noticed. Helps us move up the the algorithm there that these uh, podcast apps have going. Great show for you today. Uh, Slava Malamud is here, and Slava is a guy who has covered Russian hockey for a very long time. Uh, has a tremendous amount of perspective and experience. Uh, on how the game is viewed over there. And as we sit here now, marking the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Canada-Russia Summit Series, I uh, thought it might be kind of fun to get his perspective on uh, on how this is going to be remembered over there, if it's going to be remembered over there. You know, if you've lost something, you're probably less likely to celebrate it. But uh, there is a school of thought that uh, says maybe they didn't lose or... Um, didn't believe that they lost. So, uh, I'll be curious to ask Slava about some of that. Before we get to that, I want to remind you that, uh, this conversation started on our last episode, 1010, Dave Bedini was here and Dave is a big part of the Summit 72 four-part documentary series that debuts on CBC on Wednesday, September 14th. That's, uh, later tonight, uh, for most of you. Uh, when you're going to be hearing this, but uh, it does debut on the 14th if you're checking this out uh, sometime down the road in the future. I'm sure it's in the archives or, I don't know, I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere if you're interested in checking this thing out. But Dave was a big part of putting this together, and so we had him on to talk about, you know, the creation of the series and why this is still so memorable and such a a story that so many Canadians want to remember here uh, 50 years later. Uh, So go back and check that out if you haven't had a chance to hear it yet. Like I said, that is episode 1010. It's right here on your podcast app or at tallcanaudio.com. Also quickly want to remind you, our pals at Need a Beer are putting on an Oktoberfest this year. This is the first time they've done this. Um, They're really looking forward to it. We're looking forward to checking it out. It is on Saturday, September 24th. Get tickets and uh, more information at needabeer.com. And we'll put the links for all of this stuff in the show notes, wherever you're hearing this right now, or at tallcanaudio.com. But they're over at 190 Colonnade Road. And uh, with your ticket, you get in, obviously, you get uh, get yourself a nice brat and all the traditional German fixins. You get yourself a beer stein uh, that'll be full when you get it with uh, one of Nita's beers. And then, obviously, you get to take the stein home. Lots going on over there. It sounds like it's going to be an awful lot of fun. Like I said, more information at needabeer.com. With that out of the way, happy to be talking today to Slava Malamud, as mentioned a little while ago. Uh, tonight on the CBC at 8 p.m., we start uh, Summit 72, a four-part documentary series uh, that will run up until the end of the month. Of course, we talked to uh, Dave Bedini yesterday, who was part of putting that together. And we thought after doing that, it might be kind of fun to get the Russian perspective on this series and see how this thing is remembered. So reached out to a guy who knows a ton about Russian hockey, covered it for a very long time. Slava Malamud is here. How are you doing today, Slava? Doing great. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we appreciate you making some time. And I guess maybe the, the most logical place to start is... Uh, here in Canada, this is one of those things that, that we plaster all over every, you know, every time we're talking about Canadian sporting glory, we see the Paul Henderson goal and there's been multiple documentaries made. We, we replay the games from time to time. And so here at 50 years, uh, we're doing it again. And I wonder, 
in Russia, will this be remembered at all? Will they be marking the occasion? Will there be anything even spoken of it? Well, um, first, let, let, let me just correct you slightly. Uh, I'll be offering a Soviet perspective since uh, I was uh, born and raised in the Soviet Union. Sorry, and, sorry uh, about that, yes. And, uh, yeah, uh, as far as Russia goes, um, uh, well, they obviously have other things to preoccupy themselves right now, such as their attempt at uh, genocide and empire rebuilding. Not going so well. Uh, but... Not do not going so well at all. And uh, as far as the uh, 1972 summit series, and I am in that movie. I, I have uh, been interviewed uh, for that film, and I think I kind of voiced a similar um, uh, sentiment there. The thing is, at the time when it was happening, right, it was not heavily publicized at all. For two reasons. The first reason is obviously they thought they were going to lose badly, so they did not want to create any type of publicity for some that was not going to end well. And the second reason was that they didn't really know how to publicize because it was not the world championship, it was not the Olympics. Uh, for all they knew, it was just a friendly meetup uh, with uh, with Canadian professionals. But on the other hand, it was an unprecedented thing. I mean, the best on best hockey never been done before. Um, so they kind of didn't really know how to approach it. And when uh, when the, the Soviets did very well in the Canadian leg of the series, obviously uh, this was a completely different situation, and uh, this garnered a lot of interest. Uh, but then, of course, it ended in a loss, and now they had to spin it as a, uh, a moral victory for the, Soviet, for the Soviets. And uh, for as long as I covered Russian hockey, uh, I worked for the Sport Express, which is which was Russia's number one publication, as in the post-Soviet times, of course, number one sports publication. Uh, the only narrative I encountered was uh, Soviet hockey players had uh, debunked the myth of the invincibility of Canadian professionals. So everything around this about this phrase is politically charged, and every word means something. <laughs> Debunk the myth means we lost, but we did it in an honorable way, which is obviously true. Yep. I mean, that's uh, yep. a lot of people in Canada saw it as an uh, eye-opening moment. And um, the, the fact that they call them professionals uh, also means a lot, because that means that the Soviets were not viewed as professionals, even though they obviously were. So... Uh, the narrative was being created that these are professional hockey players. They're in the league of their own. They're not real, pure sportsmen as we are. And we went out there with our pure sporting ideals and we showed them what's what. And, you know, if, things, if a puck bounced here and there the other way, we would have won. Which the second part of it obviously is true. The first one, not so much. Uh, however, by this point right now, I don't want to say it's been forgotten. But it's been rewritten to the point where most people in Russia right now, uh, most people born after 1972, would not even be able to tell you who won that series. Mm. A lot of people in Russia who even know it happened think the Russians won it, the Soviets won it. Uh, the reason is it's never been presented as a loss. And the movie they made about it Years ago, I think circa 2013, they made a film about it. They actually, that was a biopic of Valery Harlamov, 
that film ends after game one. Okay. <laughs> so I remember in 1914, uh, 2014, I met Don Cherry at the Olympics in Sochi. And Don and I knew each other because I interviewed him a bunch of times. And he came up to me and he said, listen, I just saw this movie about Harlamov, about, about the World Series. It's a great movie. I loved it. When is part two coming out? <laughs> and Don, there is no part two. This is how it ends. Said, what do you mean? It ends after game one. I said, yep. <laughs> it was, you know, if Hollywood made the movie about the Miracle on Ice, which ended after period one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, they, they, I guess they milked it for all the ideological purposes. It could have been milked. And right now it's kind of like, uh, you know. In 2007, if you remember, there was the, they were celebrating the 30-year year anniversary, mm-hmm. right? Oh, what, 2007, yeah. Th- uh, 35. Was it thir- 30, 35-year anniversary. And they had this um, junior uh, summit yes. series. Yeah. Four games in Ufa and four games in Canada. And I covered the Canadian leg of the series. And in Russia, there was zero interest. Like, the Ufa arena was half empty. And by the time they came... By the time I think they came to Saskatoon for Game Six, nobody in Russia even read any of my articles. They they, just, they tuned it out completely. That one was very I mean, one-sided, get, though, was it not? No. Extremely, and it was the reason it was one-sided is because the Russians didn't really care. I mean, they had Sergei Nemchinov coaching, who for whom it was his first experience as a head coach of a national team, and I believe the last, and <laughs> rightfully <laughs> so, and. Like I remember, my my editor calling me in Saskatoon and saying, "Listen, it's five nothing at this point. If we win, yeah, write something. But if we lose, nobody's reading this anymore. <laughs> what are we going to do?" <laughs> so that's it kind of kind of receded into the background of all, the whole, this whole deal. It's still remembered, but it's just I don't think the same seminal reverence as it's given in Canada is given to it in Russia. Well, is it just a that it's presented as a a moral victory, or did I not read somewhere at some point that it had been spun as a, in total goals, Russia had won or something along those lines that, you know, in a more traditional sense or a different way, Russia had won that maybe you actually could hang your hat on. <laughs> I think if Henderson, no, I don't think I know. If Henderson did not score that last goal, mm-hmm. it, it would have gone down in history of Soviet hockey as a win because they would have won on total goals. Okay. And that was not even hidden because I believe that the Soviet delegation kind of informed the Canadians that if if the match ends five five, we will present it as a win on, on total goal. <laughs> and of course, that didn't happen. I think it's been spun more as uh, a, a we we played better. Canadians won because they were rough and tougher. B the Canadians only won because Bobby Clark broke Carlamo's ankle. Right. And, and see, it doesn't matter who won on, on, on games. Uh, we showed them that we are not pushovers. Uh, you know, and you can argue back and forth on all three of those points. They're not necessarily wrong. No, it's true. Uh, you mentioned there off the top that um, you know at the beginning maybe Russia didn't uh, expect this to go very well, and um, maybe they were a little surprised off the top by their own success in the years. Leading up to it, one of the things that causes this series is all the angst here in Canada that 
you know, we're having to send, you know, the Whitby Dunlops or some senior A men's team to the World Championships or Olympics, and we're routinely getting our teeth kicked in um, and always shaking our fists saying, oh, if we could send our best. At the time in that before that 72 series, are the Russians aware, like, obviously the officials would be aware. Are fans, are the average, is the average hockey fan in Russia aware that they're not facing the the best that Canada has to offer? Or how would that have been presented? Yes and no. Um, first of all, yes, everybody knew the NHL exists. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> uh, even prior to the uh, Summit Series, uh, the most the most famous hockey song written in Russian ever was written by Vladimir Vysotsky, Soviet Union's most beloved uh, uh, singer, beloved by the people. He was not beloved at all by the by the party elites. <laughs> and he wrote the song which he called Professionals. Now, he did not really know that much about hockey. He was, uh, but he loved it as a fan, but he didn't know the native radio of it. But the song was about how the Soviets are beating professionals in in hockey. And it's obvious that he thought that, you know, the trail smoke eaters (laughs) or whoever they were facing, the Royal Air Force, they were were the professionals because he mentions uh, 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 the pastor, what's his name, Father... uh, uh, Father Bauer. uh, Father Bauer, yes. He mentions him as their head coach. And... uh, and then at the, but at the same time, it seems like he's under the impression that these guys are actually NHL players who are earning big money in the, in the, in the big leagues. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of them thought that the, the Canadian teams they were beating uh, were indeed the best Canada had to offer. Now, people who were heavily into hockey, they knew that wasn't the case, and they were eager to test themselves against the, the actual real professionals. Uh, so uh, when that happened in 72, at that point, most Soviet fans were actually able to see that, yeah, okay, there's two Canadas. Sure. There's the Canada we have been facing, and this is the real Canada. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of pride involved in being able to go to Canada and win two games out of four and uh, come within the hairs, uh, come within the breath of, of winning the whole series. That was, uh, I think, at that point, people who were into hockey were surprised. And people who were not into hockey but still followed it uh, for national pride's sake uh, were uh, like, okay, well, uh, that, that, so that's what it is. Uh, that's, that's actually pretty cool. Let's do more of that. One of the stories that gets told a lot, uh, you know, when lionizing the Canadian team is, you know, that the guys, they weren't really a team at that point. They didn't run a full training camp. They had all just been getting fat, drinking beer at the cottage all summer, rolled in and... <laughs> and had to get their shit together to play this, if they were going to end up beating this Russian team in the end. Um, the Soviet team, if I'm not mistaken, is a division at the time in the military, is it not? And they had been training for months, is that correct? Pretty much, yeah. And uh, the story about Canadians drinking beer, I mean, that's that's what Esposito and Clark told me. <laughs> Esposito said, yeah, we didn't care. And Clark said, well, my line is the only one who cared. This is why we were the best line in, this, in the series, because we didn't have a spot in the roster sewn up like Espo had. Espo showed up drunk every day. We had to work our asses off to actually get into a lineup. So that's why we played better than they did. Uh, as, for, as for the Soviets, uh, you know, yeah, most of them were from the Army Club. 
Not all of them, uh, but most of them were. And uh, this is the reason why the Army team won 31 uh, Soviet championships. It's because that was used as an incubator uh, for the national team. They basically, anybody, anybody who was any good uh, was uh, drafted into the military. And uh, then they either stayed with, us, with the Army team or if they weren't good enough, they were kicked back to wherever whichever provincial squad they were blocked from in the first place. So uh, usually, yeah, the, the, uh, with the exception of a couple of teams in the 70s, I think, uh, the Red Army team was basically the national team with a couple of sprinklings here and there. Uh, in fact, um, there, were, there were a couple of players who were probably good enough to be on the, on the national team but were not good, but were not taken because they were not um, uh, part of a well-established line on the national, on, 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 uh, on SESCA, on, on, on the army team. Uh, so the, the team chemistry really was a key to Soviet dominance. You're right about that. I mean, they, the fact that they knew each other so well and they lived with each other and they could see each other without turning their head, uh, that, that was a big, big deal, whereas Canadians were basically an all-star team. Right. Was there any sense before the series started? Obviously, you mentioned there Bobby Clark and, uh, and what he did to Harlamov. Um, and the Canadians obviously did end up throwing quite a few cheap shots and, and you know played some dirty hockey at times. Not that it was uncommon in the NHL for that type. Of, we're, we're in the Broad Street Bullies era for the Flyers and, and whatever. But was that expected from the Russian or were they shocked to see just how physical this was going to be? I don't think they were shocked. I mean, I listen, my, my grandmother knew n- next to nothing about hockey, but the very first things I learned about hockey was from her. And those were, and those were two things. Number one, Canadians chew gum. And number two, all they do is fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's, that was the stereotype. I mean, Americans might think of you guys as the politest people on earth, but in Russia, in right. the Soviet Union, chew gum and fight. That's the Canadian <laughs> pastimes. Uh, and my my, uh, my second grade teacher told uh, whenever, whenever we, she saw anybody uh, chewing gum in the classroom, said, "What are you a Canadian hockey player?" <laughs> <laughs> so there were some well-established stereotypes about the, the NHL. I, I think everybody expected them to be rough and tough. I mean, they played without helmets. You could see all those scars on them. Right. Uh, you could see Bobby Clark's toothless grin. Uh, anybody looking at them at that time would have been hard pressed to have any illusions about them being <laughs> nice. <laughs> Does that reputation hold up to this day? When like when we watch a World Junior, and obviously now that that Russians play freely in the NHL, it's a totally different world. But is the view of Canadian hockey still that they're going to be more physical than most, and, and maybe in a dirty way? <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. Uh, I, everybody's playing in the same leagues now. You know, uh, to, uh, I think Russians look at Ovechkin and probably would not without uh, not without a good reason think of him as the toughest player yep. in the NHL. Yep. And uh, you know, and then you look at Sidney Crosby, who is uh, you know your clean cut type of uh, more of a European style forward, even maybe. And uh, I don't think I think that stereotype has been left in the past. They're all wearing helmets with shields now. They all skate like the wind. 
I just think I think, I think of those yeah. World Junior teams in the mid two thousands, where in back to back years, Ovechkin and Malkin don't finish the gold medal game because Canadians have targeted them and run them through the boards repeatedly. And even I at those that time kind of remember going, "Jesus Christ!" Like this is kind of a targeted assault here. I, I just, oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, and I remember uh, you guys don't really follow the World Championships too much, but in Russia it's still a big deal. And my the first World Championship I covered was 2003 in Finland, which Canada won, and uh, I believe Russia's top line there had Kovalchuk on it, uh, Kovalchuk, Datsuk, and uh, Semen, I believe, hmm. and uh, that and the Canadians uh, played. Uh, uh, Draper's line against it, right? Chris Draper, and they just ate them up. They destroyed them. It was just physically, absolutely humiliated uh, the Russian top line. It was not even close. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think when when we in the, in the Russian media talked about this, it was more like with admiration. Oh, I see. That's right. that's I was, that was well done. But of course, uh, whenever there is a reason to remember. Uh, the old stereotype of dirty, rough, and tough Canadians—it uh, will be, it will be remembered, obviously. And uh, those junior teams, of course, gave a reason for that. And uh, even in 2011, the Buffalo one, uh, when Tarasenko was knocked out of the game, uh, right yeah. in, in the second period, I believe there was also a lot of grumbling going on. There's Canadians back to their old dirty tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when we, you know, talk about a series like this and the, the Russians show through those eight games that they're absolutely every bit as good and can hang with Team Canada, um, is there, do you think at that time, any chatter, any, you know, any thoughts from any of the players with on, uh, within that team that might have said, you know what, I might want to take the jump. And I, I know it's a politically a different world. Maybe they never even saw an ability to leave. But do you think there was any... Anyone coming out of that series going, you know what, I, I'd like to go make some money and, and play in the NHL at that time? Or was the reality just far too stark for that? Oh, I think there were advances made to them. I know for a fact that Harlamov was approached uh, with a very lucrative offer. Um, I don't think the, the political reality of the 1970s in the Soviet Union, uh, that kind of offer would have been like akin to, do you want to go to the moon? Right. Okay. You know, it, it was just never even thought of seriously. Uh, they, the, the whole, uh, if you remember, the 1970s was about the time when uh, there was a movement in the Soviet Union to let the Jewish population emigrate to Israel or the United States, and a lot of them were being refused, uh, and the whole idea of leaving the country was demonized and. Uh, presented as uh, treason and some completely unacceptable. Uh, and like, if you leave the country, you will never be allowed to come back. And that was that was actually a very scary proposition yeah. uh, to a lot of people. And uh, I know that Harlamov at one point wanted to go to Spain, where uh, I mean, he's half Spanish, his, uh, his mom is Spanish. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there was an idea about him going to Spain and try to develop youth hockey there. And uh, he had lots of opportunities to do that, but uh, that obviously would not have been looked upon kindly by the officials, so that never materialized, even though he was probably the highest-profile athlete in the Soviet Union at the time. So 
I think there was uh, there were some uh, lower profile players who did make the jump in the early '80s who were not really well known. Um, there was one who played for the Kings, I believe, in the early '80s, mm. but he would never made the Soviet national team. Uh, so n- those those notions were never entertained until the late '80s, when uh, when the big stars of the of the Red Army team uh, decided to make a stand. Yeah, and I guess you know, as you're sort of alluding to there, if you're still of use to the Russian team, you're not going anywhere. If you're of you know, you're retired. Like, I believe Makarov was one of the first to come who was a big name, but he was well past his prime, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, he was still pretty good. And uh, I think the, uh, the first one, um, uh, the, f- the first one, jeez, uh, I forget the name, my goodness. Uh, the guy from the Soviet wings who went to Calgary, uh, Sergei Pryakhin. Yes, Sergei okay. Pryakhin. He was the first one to go, and uh, he was kind of like a trial balloon, and then they let Makarov go. Well, yeah, I mean, he was kind of a. They could. They, they were working on a new top line, so they they thought, okay, well, we can let him go, and it will be a good advertisement for Soviet hockey abroad as well. Uh, but even then, McGillney had to defect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two years later, I believe McGillney had to defect. It was still not open, and, and uh, the same, I believe. And- Fedorov the same in 91 as the Soviet Union was disintegrating and Fetisov had to go through hell to be allowed to go uh, to go there. I know he's denying it now. (laughs) Now now that he's a politician and it's advantageous for him to be seen as a patriot he says that he went through all the proper channels but in reality (laughs) Lula Morello had to smuggle him out of there too and he was and Fetisov really raised a lot of trouble in order to be able to go to New Jersey. All right. Uh, this is really interesting. Slava, I appreciate your uh, your perspective. And um, do you think, in the, the as we wrap up here, in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, what is the, the legacy of the series in your mind? I think it's one of those uh, rare opportunities where a North American league, which by its nature is a closed, commercially oriented, franchise-based league, was able to take itself on a worldwide arena and show the actual how it actually compares with the world's best. Uh, the only thing that compares to to this, of course, is the 1992 um, uh, Dream Team right. in basketball. Uh, they 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 were able to do the same, and uh, it was unthought of because at that point, like you know, baseball still isn't at this point. I mean, they, I know they play the World Baseball Classic once every however many years they can actually persuade the players <laughs> to do it, but like nobody really follows it. And uh, I know uh, the teams aren't actually crazy about interrupting spring, spring training for it. American football will probably never be at that point. Sure. Uh, and uh, the, the NHL was the first to have done it. They took their league into a uncharted waters and that i mean everybody in europe knew knew that nhl players were the best but the nhl didn't really know how it compared to the rest of the world Mm -hmm. Uh, and remember i mean only five years prior to that it was a league that consisted of six teams its world was tiny minuscule and it suddenly expanded by leaps and bounds uh, in astronomical progression so that that is really a uh a huge moment in in North American sports, first and foremost, and it's a big moment for hockey history. Uh, and one would wonder how it would have gone if 
if Henderson doesn't score. Right. Uh, or if the Soviets score and win that game. One wonder if that was a moment that could have changed hockey history forever. Uh, hockey I can tell history you, was we're balanced. not watching a documentary uh, tonight about it. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do. I think of all countries, Canada is one that is probably able of self-reflection and self-analysis a lot better than the United States or Russia is. <laughs> Definitely better than Russia. I always admired your guys' ability to laugh at yourself, to look at yourself critically, and to appraise yourself with a... Uh, maybe a more sober eye than the Russians are able to. <laughs> right. Uh, if you don't mind, I, I did. You you mentioned earlier that the the Russians didn't expect this to go very well when it started. Why agree to it? Because we're in the middle of a cold war and the era of propaganda, and you know everybody propping themselves up mm. as the superiors. Why do this? I think it was sold to the Soviets by very skillful people, and Alan Eagleson, of course, was first and foremost. Yeah. It was uh, just a force of personality, and there were people on the Soviet end who were receptive to the idea. And I think, I don't know, I wasn't a fly in the wall, obviously, you know, in the corridors of power there in the Soviet Union. I think it might have been just simply told, uh, said that, you know, there's no real downside. Uh, first of all, the series started when the Olympics were happening in Munich. Right. And if it wasn't going so well, we can just sweep it under the rug, under the Olympics news. Nobody would have noticed. Noticed, And if somebody did, which is, you know, it's just a bunch of friendly games. We're just testing ourselves against Canadians. And what do you expect? They're professionals and all of their referees are for, you know, there were many ways of spinning it as not really a terrible failure or at least not something embarrassing or just kind of sweeping it under the rug. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean... It was kind of a, what do we have to lose proposition, but we have so much to gain if we actually show ourselves and play well. And of course, people who knew, who were inside, I mean, the, the coaches and the players and the, the movers and shakers of Russian hockey, I think they knew uh, that their team could hang with Canadians. I think they, they knew it quite well because they visited Canada before. They watched NHL games. They knew the strong and the weak points of Canadian hockey. So I think the people in the know, people who, who talk chop, they knew that this was not as clear cut and as as, as predetermined. Whereas Canadian people who who, yeah. who talk chop yeah. had no idea about Russian hockey. They had no idea what they were facing. So that was actually uh, not such a huge gamble as you might think it was. True. Yeah. Uh, this was a lot of fun, Slava. Thank you so much for making some time for me. Uh, we're I don't know. We're we're going to be talking all about this series again for the next couple of weeks up here. That's uh, you. You pointed out that uh, sometimes we're we're very good with humility, at other times not so much. We love to navel gaze as well. So uh, this was great. Thank well, you so much. Hockey, when it comes to hockey, you guys are a bunch of jingoistic a holes, but I do admire <laughs> more than, more than most countries. <laughs> I think you've got that right. Thank you so much for making the time. Have a good one. You too. All right, there he goes. That was. Uh, that was really cool. Uh, Slava's an interesting guy. He's a great follow on Twitter, at Slava Malamud. We'll put his handle in the show notes there if you want to check it out. Uh, great, great observations on uh, on all kinds of things here in uh, in terms of North American sport. Uh, you know, it's fun to get from a different perspective, of course. Also, uh, lots of perspective on the, the war going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. He's got uh, strong thoughts on all of that. He's a, a well-worthwhile follow on social media. Uh, we do appreciate him making the time, of course. Uh, don't forget, Thursday morning, episode 1012, Screeds, Michaela Schreider, back in the house. 
we haven't seen her since episode 1000. She was traveling across the UK, sampling all kinds of beers. I'm hoping she brought me something home. I haven't gotten confirmation on that. Uh, I'm not super confident that that's happened, but uh, we'll find out soon enough. Uh, certainly, though, we're hoping to uh, to hear how that went, uh, what beers she may have stumbled across. And I know she spent some time at uh, at the Guinness facilities, where uh, I'm pretty sure we know what she drank while she was there. Uh, that's coming at you on episode 1012 on Thursday morning, so stick around for that as well. Uh, that's it for this one. Thank you all for checking out the show. Hope you enjoyed this. And if not, I don't know. We'll try better next time. My name's Matt Robinson. We'll catch you all later. I am unhappy with the confusing and at times confrontational nature of that meeting. I wanted it to go better. I wanted it to go better!